Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Paul Hawken. Paul Hawken is an environmentalist, an entrepreneur, author, and an activist who has dedicated his life to environmental sustainability and changing the relationship between business and the environment. Paul Hawken is the founder of Project Drawdown, a nonprofit dedicated to researching when and how global warming can be reversed. He's written eight books, including five national bestsellers, including the book Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, and a new book, which is the subject of this conversation, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Paul's work is an inspiration to action. He writes, our job is not to fret and cling to threads of hope. Our role is to solve problems, blame, demonization of others, and hand-wringing waste our time and energy. Paul calls us Team Earth to get to work. Here's a very catalytic and inspiring conversation with Paul Hawken. Paul, we're celebrating here your new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And this is a sequel to your 2017 book, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And I'm excited to talk to you as somebody who wants to understand more from someone like you who's right at the center of all of this research, all of this thinking, all of this writing. You know, I've heard from people I deeply respect, you know, Tammy, get real. We're actually past the point where humans can make enough of an impact for the climate crisis not to basically kill humanity. We're past that point. Get real. And I've heard from other people, you know, this is the critical decade. This is the critical decade where it's not game over. In your language, it's game on. In the previous podcast we recorded on Drawdown, those were the words you used, game on. So where do you feel we are right now here in 2021 in terms of the timeline and the climate crisis? Uh, what a good, good question. It's lovely to be with you. And yes, um, it's easy to be a doomsayer about where we are because <clears throat> the science is incredible. 
the rate of change uh, surpasses earlier predictions. That is what's happening with warming, Arctic ice melting, temperature changes, fires, droughts, etc. You know, all this is happening much quicker than was predicted by the IPCC. Um, and so it'd be very easy then to project ahead further and say, therefore, you know, it's game over. Um, and um, my question back to those people is, okay, then what are you going to do? <laughs> Notice, what's your life about? Why are you here? I mean, really, you know, and um, and I would say that if you were a gambling person and you want to lay odds on it, then your odds would be that, you know, it's too late, but not because it's too late. It's because nobody's doing anything. And when I say nobody's doing anything, 98 to 99% of humanity is disengaged. How could that be the greatest crisis that civilization has ever faced, but certainly may ever face? And what do we do? How do we communicate? What was it that created this gap between um, what is needed um, and what is possible and what is happening? And so, I mean, that's the question to me, you know, it's not like being, you know, basically predictably, um, you know, apocalyptic, you know, and say, look, apocalypse is coming, wake up, you know, give it, you know. I mean, that's what people are saying. And I know it and I hear it and I see it. I read it as well. You know, that's not who I hang out with, but it's definitely um, sensible from a, just a pure scientific point of view. But there's a big gap in all that, which is humanity, you know. And my belief is that the climate movement will become the biggest movement on Earth. And um, not because of some charismatic leader, not because of slogan, not because of, you know, some political leader is going to rise up and galvanize us all. No, it's because of weather. And so climate is moving from the conceptual to the experiential. And when it moves to the experiential, you get a sea change in people's way of seeing, thinking, and being in the world. And it happens very, very quickly. And the interesting thing about, if you look at humanity and its ability to kind of pivot, you know, to just like a flock of birds suddenly change directions. You know, we have done that before in history and we can do it again. And we only do it when we feel threatened and when we have to, and there's a reason. I mean, within weeks of Pearl Harbor, you know, people, <laughs> the auto industry shut down, you know, it was making tanks, you know, two months later, no cars are being made. I mean, uh, women went to work, men went overseas. I mean, the, 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 the speed with which we mobilized in the United States after Pearl Harbor was astonishing, you know. And it was a war. This is not a war. So I don't want to uh, analogize it in that way. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, we are amazing when we have the understanding and the reason to act. We have the wherewithal. There's no question about that. Um, so... That's what I would say to them. And the other thing I would say to them is that, you know, not to them, but to everybody in general, is why is 98 to 99% of humanity disengaged? I mean, they can be sympathetic, empathetic. They can be, you know, get it, understand anthropogenic causes of climate, global warming, uh, and still not really do anything. 
and they, you know, they watch a documentary on Netflix about climate and they think they've done something, you know, <laughs> there's this, the, the mind confuses itself that way. And I would say it's for two reasons. One is when the science started to come out 45, 50 years ago, and it goes back further than that, but in the public sphere, uh, the science was very much about um, future existential threat. And the scientists quite correctly were saying, if we don't change what we're doing now and continue on the same course we're going, this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen. We don't know exactly, but we will confront and face these challenges and these changes that will affect civilization and our viability as a civilization. And nobody listened to it really because the brain isn't wired to respond to future existential threat. And everyone who's listening to this podcast and you and I and so forth, uh, our ancestors were really good at responding to current existential threat. That's how the brain is wired. And so nothing much happened, you know, and there was a climate movement that did begin and, and exists to this day. But the activists, when they took on the science, um, then took the threat, it was a future existential threat and, and threat causes fear, okay. And they took the fear and the threat and then they added to it blame and shame, you know, which is to blame the people who did it, the Exxons and Chevrons, which richly deserve it, by the way. Um, and then shaming those who were harming, hurting, not aware, not doing their, you know, continuing to pollute the planet, continuing to, you know, double glaze the planet with greenhouse gases and so forth. So there you have, uh, you know, most people listening to fear, threat, blame, shame, guilt. And those are the most uninspiring set of words you can imagine to create action, you know. And so, um, uh, and the results show. The results are showing. And so what regeneration is about is trying to do a figure ground shift on this sort of overwhelm of probability of what's going wrong, how fast it's going wrong, how quickly it could go wronger, so to speak. Uh, and to change it to uh, uh, a narrative where it's like, wow, this science is incredible. It's incredible. What great science. Got it. Thank you. Now let's go to work. And it goes back to Wendell Berry's quote, you know, from his poem, be joyous though you know all the facts. Um, but nobody knows the fact about the future because it doesn't exist. So anybody who says they are know what's going to happen in the future is wrong because it doesn't exist. And we creating the future right now. So just to check something out with you, Paul, what I hear you saying is that weather changes that we're currently experiencing, fires, immediate threats, that's what's going to galvanize people, not about some future existential concern, but right now, and that's what will create the greatest movement in human history. Is that right? Is that your perspective? Uh, yeah, of course, because, I mean, it's experiential. Experience changes us. And I think even back then when I was at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and I learned everything there about climate, you know, from my colleagues. But everybody said then, and they were quite right, that humans probably won't do anything about this until it's experiential, and then it'll be too late, just as some people say right now. And it was a good point then, and it's a good point now, you know, which is 
we could have been doing so much 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago that would have taken us to a completely different place at this time. We didn't. Um, that that uh, but that's yeah exactly what I'm saying and so forth. You know, it, because the conceptuality of climate was about jargon and acronyms. You know, like who understands really what carbon neutrality means? It means nothing. The Earth has never been carbon neutral. It's a carbon cycle. <laughs> you know, and what does net zero mean? You know, what does a negative emission mean? Now, I'm an English major. There's no such thing as a negative emission. You know, that's like saying, oh, it's a negative tree, a negative whale, a negative, I mean, come on. And this is terminology that's being used, you know, uh, decarbonization. I mean, you're a pipe fitter, you're a nurse, you know, you work at a restaurant. Somebody says, oh, you know, what are you doing about decarbonization? It has no meaning, these acronyms and jargon. And that's the language that's been used by the, both the science side and the activist side and the political side to this day. You know, and if you want to ensure that there's no uptake and no engagement, talk that way. And that's the way we're talking. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's so much I want to talk to you about, Paul. I notice I'm kind of jumping out of my skin here. One of the metaphors that you introduce in regeneration is that we are right now at this time being homeschooled by planet Earth. And I wanted to understand more about that metaphor. And if we're being homeschooled, what do you see as the core learnings that planet Earth is trying to teach us in this school that we're in? <laughs> yeah, um, the, the idea that climate change is a problem is a mistake because the climate is perfect. It's always perfect. Nature never makes a mistake. We do. Okay, number one. Number two, the atmosphere and the biosphere are one thing in different expressions and modalities and concentrations, but it's one thing. So therefore, you know, when the atmosphere is changing, it's because the biosphere has changed. And we are the biosphere and, you know, we've caused this extraordinary uh, rapid increase in emissions, particularly CO2, okay? So any system that ignores feedback perishes. If we get a fever, that's feedback. If we have aches and pains, that's feedback. We have different symptoms, that's feedback. We respond. We go to a doctor. We go to a healer. We do, you know, we change our way of life, or thinking, or diet, or extra, you know, whatever. That's feedback. We respond to feedback. So, the change in the caused by global warming, which is the right term, by the way, that's what's going on. The atmosphere is warmer. You know, almost one degree now, centigrade, and warming air warming in the atmosphere causes changes in, in the jet stream and weather and oceanic currents and so forth. And that changes uh, weather where we live and that threatens us, okay? So what I say we're being homeschooled is that we're getting feedback and it's one system. And it's what we've done, Tammy, and the way we talk about it is we've othered climate. Well, we live in a very fortunate time where the the duplicity and the horror, frankly, of othering has come to the fore. The Me Too movement is about othering a whole gender, for Christ's sakes. You know, I'm not just <laughs> half of the world is being othered, you know, and it goes back. Okay, but we other races, you know, racism, religions, anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, you know, um, religion in terms of Islam and so forth, this othering, we're surfeited with that. We've been othering climate this whole time. 
as if climate change was a problem, if it's out there somewhere and that we're going to fix it. It's a very male way of looking at the world. I have to say with all due respect to my gender, you know, it is really how men look at it and they get in this Promethean mode like Bill Gates and say, well, we're going to fix it, you know, and we're going to get new technologies to fix the technologies that have caused the problem. And every time you get a technology to fix old technological problems, you get new technological problems. You don't fix it at all. You just change the nature of the problems. And so, uh, so rather than looking at it as an it out there somewhere, which doesn't exist, it's a figment of the imagination and the ego, so forth, we have to understand it's us, you know. And like I say, you know, the only thing that's making a mistake is us. And what mistake are we making by being out of alignment with biology, with life, you know. And so regeneration is really about alignment, which is, and it asks the question, which is a fair question. Can we, uh, do we want to continue to steal the future? Because that's what we're doing. We're just stealing the future from, you know, our children and our grandchildren and those who succeed us. Or do we want to heal it? And what I mean by steal the future is that every economic sector that we are involved with, that we buy from, the services from which we receive, are absolute, absolutely taking life. In other words, they extract value. And if you just, you know, follow the breadcrumbs, you know, on anything you buy, have, own virtually, uh, it takes you back to supply chains that are destroying life. They're taking life. They don't mean to, they don't intend to, they just accept it as a matter of fact and so forth. They're not bad people. But the fact is when you take life, you degenerate. Okay. So the question regeneration is asking is twofold. One is like, well, what does it mean to do a 180 and putting life at the center of every act and decision? In other words, and the assumption I think that's tacit and well embedded in capitalism is that, well, yeah, but the way you make capital is to take, and it does it very well, but <laughs> you know, it takes life, you know, whether it's biodiversity, whether it's the oceans, whether, you know, it's the cause of pollution, rivers, land through industrial agriculture and so forth. Everywhere you look where industry is active is destroying life and so forth. And the question is, can we just do a 180? Can we actually increase life on earth and create prosperity and economy and you know, well-being for humanity and so forth. And the answer is yes, because the way we're going now goes the opposite direction. We are creating less well-being for the earth, less well-being for people, and people are sicker, less healthy. Environments are degrading or falling apart. You know, food is becoming more scarce. You know, fish are disappearing. I mean, you can go on and on that list. And so, in other words, what we can see is if we look down the road of degeneration, which is our existing banking, financial, capitalist you know, money accreting, capital creating system. We, that road ends. We can see the end of that road already. I mean, that's what scientists are saying. That's what people involved with conservation, biodiversity, who oceanographers are saying, hey, stop. You can't keep doing that. It, it, it won't be anything there if you keep doing that. So regeneration is about good idea. Let's do a 180. What does that mean? What does that mean? And can we actually create a world where we're healing the future. And yes, easily, just as easily. It has GDP. You can have money, transactions, jobs, jobs that are a lot more meaningful than the ones that exist right now, which in so many cases provide no meaning, no purpose, no dignity to people whatsoever. 
And if, if there's anything that's going to bring us alive, it's going to be a world that, I mean, jobs and vocations and purposes that mean something. And when we bring the world back to life, which is what regenerated, regeneration is about, we bring ourselves back to life. Now, Paul, I want to uh, just share something personally for a moment. You know, I was lucky to get a pre-release copy of Regeneration, and I noticed immersing myself in the book and reading about how you encourage us not to see the climate crisis as something outside of ourselves, but to really experience ourselves as nature that's regenerating right now. Like you and I, we're regenerating while we're having this conversation. Is that true? Your cells, my cells? Absolutely. All 30 trillion cells are regenerating every nanosecond, you know, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So the wonderful thing about regeneration is innate. In other words, it's not like a, a term or concept or what does sustainability mean and when do you achieve it and how do you measure it and blah, 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 blah. We regenerate every day. We take care of ourselves. Our body takes care of itself. We take care of our, our partner, our children, our friends, our family. Our, our home, our, you know, in terms of the garden, the flowers, you know, we, we do this every day. Every single human being does that. You can have somebody who's a right-wing zealot who's got more armament, you know, armaments in his house than, you know, <laughs> conceivably possible. And he will be really kind to his dog, you know? <laughs> right. Okay. So let me, so let me ask this question though, Paul. So here I am, I wake up and okay. I'm experiencing after reading your writing, this regenerative kind of, I'd say aspect of true nature inside of me. I feel like a fountain. I feel so happy. I feel here I am reading a book about, you know, ending the climate crisis in one generation. And I genuinely feel the sense of celebrating all of the people who are doing this great work out in the world. So I feel that, feel that inside me. I feel the energy. And then I think of how difficult it is to change these social structures that feel outside of me. And you talked about how 98 to 99% of people don't feel engaged in solving the climate crisis. And I had the feeling of, yeah, when it comes to experiencing regeneration in a close way, in, in my body, in my family. I get that. But when it comes to changing these larger structures, I feel probably the way most people feel, which is kind of impotent, I feel sure. impotent. And I wonder if you can address that. Yeah, because you're, you're taking it, you're biting off what you can't chew. <laughs> you're trying to change the larger structures. The larger structures change from the middle out, not from the top down. They never have. And so one of the things that's happened is that the uh, climate emergency, the climate crisis has been in a sense individuated or on one side, like this is what you can do, you know, you, okay, me, yes, you. And then this is what they can do. That was the conference of the parties or, you know, a new administration or big corporations and so forth. And, you know, when you hear what you can do, oftentimes, you know, when I started, you know, I created Drawdown, I mean, you know, if you Google what you could do, it's like put a power strip in your home entertainment center and use cold water and recycle. You know, it was like, unless you had an IQ lower than room temperature, you knew that that was inadequate to the task at hand, you know, I mean, and it was actually disempowering. And then, then you look at, 
you know, the establishment, you know, basically whatever, whether it's corporate or government or otherwise and so forth and go, wow, you know, those guys usually, <laughs> but those people are really out of it, you know, and they're corrupt in most cases, corrupted by money and by other interests and so forth. And it, it creates a sense of despair. And the thing we talk about in regeneration is that you have agency. You're not an individual. You're not Tammy Simon. That's what you wake up in the morning and believe. That's your ego saying, hey, you know, none of us are individuals. Uh, we are part of a network, you know, and your network is, again, your family, your friends, community. You have agency. It's not just what you individually can do in the morning. You're doing it right now. You're doing podcasts. You do Amazon. You're doing sounds too. I mean, you've done it for a long time. That's your agency. So you are not one thing, you know, in that sense of. And so that's a mistake we make, which is we think, well, somehow we got to change Wall Street. We got to change, you know, um, you know, buy our Monsanto. You know, we've got to. <laughs> we can't. But what we can change is the conditions that create those institutions, but we can't do it at the same scale they operate at. We can look at the inertia and the momentum of those institutions and going, oh man, that's just crazy. And, uh, you know, I feel like an ant when a steamroller is coming, you know, on a road. I mean, it just feels impossible. But because the, the, the change arises from the periphery, it doesn't arrive arise from the center, you know, I'm not saying the concentrations of capital and money and corporate power and governments are the center, but they are actually the center and nexus of power right now. But that's not where change comes from. It always comes from the outside in and so forth. And what we know is those institutions, basically, they may be getting richer, but they're failing, they're failing, 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 and so forth. And we can't equate the accumulation of capital with success. If we do, then we're we're thinking like they do, and they're, they're, you know, and that's why you see. I may be digressing here, but that's why you see. Bayer Monsanto, Cargill, Bungay, ADM, you know, General Mills, and these companies saying, "Oh, we're into regenerative agriculture." Why? Because they know that industrial ag paradigm is dead. They know it. They see it, and they're like, "Oh, we're going to do regen ag." They're not really going to do it but they're going to take on the moniker of it. And that is a, a, a one sign of that, you know, the fact that it, that is crumbling, that's changing. It's not going to work. It can't persist. It doesn't mean we want to have big institutions, but it doesn't mean that you should wake up and, then, you know, and say, there's nothing I can do about this. There's everything you can do about it. And we have to understand that really everything is community and it's community that changes um, the locus of power, you know, and uh, and will it be in time? Will it happen in time? I don't know. You know, it's not my business to know the future. My business is to act effectively, to do the most I can, the best I can. And what I do see is uh, an emerging, burgeoning regeneration movement in the world. I mean, it's much, much, much bigger than people understand and know. And we'll you'll see that on the website in Nexus. You'll see how big it is. I mean. It's astonishing, and it's growing much more rapidly than the things that are harming us are growing. Now, Paul, you mentioned that people can have the feeling I watched a Netflix documentary, so I'm doing something. So what I don't want is someone to listen to this podcast and say, oh, I listened to Paul Hawken. I'm doing something. I don't want that. And when you mentioned, uh, you know, 
the actions that we can take in our home, put down a power strip, et cetera, we realize this isn't up for the task. People get that. I get that. Our listeners get that. This next step, though, how am I going to be part of a activated community? In what way? I don't really know. I feel a little lost. Help us there. Yeah. So the book regeneration is, I call it a neurotransmitter, okay? <laughs> Not a book. The last eight pages is called Action and Connection. That's a wormhole. I'm mixing my metaphors here. It's a wormhole to the website. In the website is a section called Nexus, N-E-X-U-S, connection point. Okay. And that is the most complete listing and network of climate solutions in the world and how to do it. How to do it is the most important thing. Okay. Because Actually, again and again and again, I give talks and so forth, and people say, yeah, well, what should I do? What should I? They don't know what to do. And, if you, and I can't tell them what they should do, but I can tell them that up till now, there hasn't been a place where you can figure out how to do it. And so take degraded land restoration. You know, there's over 2 billion hectares of degraded land in the world. What a, I mean, what are the potentials of this land when you restore it are extraordinary in terms of water, jobs, food, security, carbon sequestration, that is to bring carbon back home. It's just amazing. Go find how to do it. You can't find it now on Google anywhere. So what we have in Nexus is basically for every challenge and solution, challenges like plastics, that's not a solution. That's just challenge, you know? Um, and, uh, but electrifying your home or heat pumps, that's a solution. Degraded land restoration, that's a solution. What you have in Nexus is call to action, description, and then you have what you can do as an individual, for sure, what you can do as a school, a classroom, a church, a synagogue, what you can do as a community, what you can do as a neighborhood, what you can do as a city or a town or village, what you can do as a company, small company, big company, who you can influence. This is where you want to direct your influence. These are the bad actors. You know, if it's the boreal forest, uh, this is the name of the chairman of Procter & Gamble. This is his phone number. Here's his, his, his email. And they're making plush toilet paper out of the boreal forest. The biggest stock of carbon on Earth is in the boreal, on, on the terrestrial, that is Earth on land, not the ocean. And you can write to him and say, you know, I don't think making plush toilet paper out of the boreal forest is a great idea. And this is who you can, this, so this is influence and saying, I'm not into it. And same with Kimberly Clark and same with Georgia Pacific. Then here's the good actors. Here's the people who are just leading. I mean, as individuals, you know, their voices, you know, I mean, and you have a lot of these voices on Sounds True. So you know what I'm talking about, those people who just have that way of bringing people together and exploring issues and ideas. And then you have all the NGOs and institutions that are just kicking butt. I mean, they're doing such a great job. They're on it. They're informed. Um, they need support. You can support them in different ways and so forth. And then you have all the great videos that teach you about it. You know, then you have the documentaries if there's docs there. You have the great books. You have the great articles that have come out in the Atlantic or here, the Post or whatever and so forth. And, and so basically what you have is you want to know degraded land restoration here. And there are links. They're not us telling you what to do or how to do it. It's the world showing 
you how to do it, what to do, where it's happening. And this is for every single, the most complete list of solutions from drawdown, from regeneration, from accelerated pathways, from all the different collectors of solutions in the world. This has never existed before, Tammy, never before. So going back to you, which is, it's really about what lights you up. To me, you're lit up. You're doing sounds true. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in also for all of our listeners yeah. who I think have this gap. Yeah. What is the website, Paul? Regeneration.org. You know, you said the book is a neurotransmitter, and then you write here towards the end of the book in this section on action and connection, the way to heal a system is to connect more of it to itself. Yeah. I thought that's really interesting. Is that the way to heal a system? What does that mean to connect more of it to itself? It sounds like that's what you're explaining here. That's how an ecosystem works. You know, that's how social and economic systems work. Systems heal by being connected to themselves, you could flip that and say the, the primal cause of global warming is this profound disconnection between people, between people and nature, and the disconnection we've caused within nature itself through habitat fragmentation, acidification, pollution, degradation, deforestation, etc. So regeneration is, in a sense, reconnecting these broken strands you know and it starts with yourself for sure you know we have broken strands within us you know in our own relationships our own family and our own understanding but also in our communities and this and that and involves listening but so that's how you heal a system and we know that scientifically and we're a system the earth is one system and and it'd be it'd be facile to say although true everything's connected you know, oh, I mean, that's just a, a new age cliche, you know, I mean, but what I try to do in the book is within specific subjects like marine protected areas or fire ecology or wilding or, you know, uh, electrifying everything, all these different solutions is to show connections to people that they might not have known about within those context of those solutions. And so that as you read the book from the middle out and back forward, doesn't matter what sequence you read it in, the point being is that as you read it, you say, oh, that's connected. I never knew that. How interesting. How does that work? Oh, wow. And, and so that at the end of the book, which what I've tried to do is create spaciousness. And the spaciousness is so that you can go, wow, I get it. It really is all connected. But you now have come to that conclusion. Nobody said, you know, at the beginning, you know, listen up, everything's connected, we're screwing up. I mean, that is not a good way to talk to people. Right. But Paul, let me just dig a little deeper into this. You said that, you know, we see in our immune system that the way to heal a system is to connect more of it to itself. And I, I think I just don't really understand how it is that systems heal and how this connection is so critical for that healing to take place. Well. I mean, I got this from Francisco Varela when I was writing Blessed Unrest. And so, and then, but what happened was I was giving a talk at Bioneers and um, I said that the um, movement I was describing, the one million organizations in the world that were address, addressing social justice, environmental degradation, 
and indigenous people's rights were like the immune system, the humanity's immune response to ecological degradation, you know, economic destruction, etc. And after I, I, I said that spontaneously, and then when I got home, I thought, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't even know what, uh, how the immune system works. And then I really drilled down into the literature. And that's when I was reading Varela and other scientists. And, it, and I discovered that really an immune system that's not working is one that's out of touch with itself. It's broken and, and in, in various ways. The cytokine response to get geeky and so forth is immune system it goes way overboard when you get a COVID uh, infection, okay, by a virus. And the, the cytokine response kills the patient, not the virus, okay. And so um, we just know this biologically, Tammy. I, I'm not a scientist, you know. Uh, and then I began to look at ecosystems and the same thing. We know, we know that when you remove certain creatures or plants from an ecosystem, the, the ecosystem starts to go into rapid degradation. And we didn't understand why before. And then as we've got to be better observers, better scientists, better biologists, better ecologists, and so forth, we understood these connections that something we might have seen as marginal, like whatever, you know, we don't need that bird, that frog, that plant. Oh, yes, we do. That it was knit together in such an exquisite way that when you removed one element, then the system started to break down. You know, Bernie Krauss, a great acoustic ecologist, has done work where he was just recording intact virgin landscapes, you know, because the sounds are so beautiful. And then he'd go back, you know, five or 10 years later and to places in the Sierra that were selectively and carefully logged, you know, very carefully logged, the sound was completely different. The number of creatures had collapsed. And, and, and so this is, we understand this about ecosystems and social systems are also systems. That is, they're intricate and, and they are self, they, they, um, What's the word? I mean, they're creating themselves, you know, all the time. It's not like they're being created or it's fixed, you know. I mean, um, and so self-organizing systems is what we do. It's what nature does. And we are nature as well. We see our social economic systems as other, but we shouldn't in terms of the basic principles that uh, organize and rule. Uh, the way systems evolve and change. Now, Paul, when I was at, talking about this impotent quality, I feel when it comes to structural change, you started your response by saying change comes from the middle. And then later you talked about change coming from the periphery. And I noticed I got a little confused about those two things. So I just want to really understand what you mean. Yeah, I, I mean, because we top down, we go top, top is power, the bottom is activists, you know, and what I'm right. saying is everything in between is where the change comes from. It is still peripheral to the centers of power, you know, okay. obviously. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a, a quote from the book, the number one cause of human change is when people around us change. I thought that was yeah. really interesting. And I, I wanted to hear more about that. Well, again, this is just science, you know, I mean, 
probably sociology, but also uh, neuroscience, both, you know. And there is a hell of a lot of great scientists in the world today. There's never been more scientists than there is right this moment, you know. And as um, Andrew Huberman talks about at Stanford, you know, because they're looking at the mind, the brain, and how it works, and that's neuroscience and neurobiology. Um, they look at how do people change? You know, people in addiction also look at that. Well, how does somebody get addicted? What's, a, what's the impact of trauma? How do people change and so forth? So just so many people looking at this and you've interviewed, talked to many of them, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, but the, the thing that has the biggest influence is actually other people's actions and who they are, not our own belief system, which is squirrely and changes every, every other minute with our monkey mind, you know? And the thing that impacts us is really, is other people is in, and if we live like a monk or like a hermit somewhere, well, that, you know, that doesn't matter. Most people live in proximity to many other people. And so what you see, like in the Trump phenomenon and so forth, is people changing other people. People didn't start stupid, you know. <laughs> they were around other people where they felt simpatico. And it, the, the sympathy that they felt together was feeling that they've been victimized by this economy, you know, by the way things are. And I think most people in the progressive movement say, hallelujah, you're right, brother and sister. You know, I mean, they would agree actually on that, saying this is not working. Um, but they then were influenced with, with the people who they knew and, and somehow that got seeded, that got started. That's how fascism always starts, by the way, in, in, in politics. And so um, the, it, it, I, I don't know how to say it other, other than that, but I think you have to look at your own life and not you necessarily, but the listeners and say, who's had the biggest influence on you? And, and or what you know it doesn't mean trauma or other things can have a huge influence they can of course but in terms of your behavior your direction your vector your understanding your wholeness you know it's usually another human being mm -hmm. okay i want to make sure that our listeners have a good sense of the new book regeneration what the book covers and what you're hoping to accomplish with it so lay, lay that out for them well, first of all, uh, I'm not interested remotely in hope. Hope is not a plan. Um, <laughs> it's just the mask of fear. And what we need to be now is fearless and courageous and not hopeful. Um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to negate the question. It's a good question, but I'm just saying I don't hope for anything. Um, what I try to be is effective. And so what I try to create is the conditions for self-organization in the world. And what I um, were what we, because of my staff and researchers, what we're we're trying to do um, is create those conditions. You know, with the book, with the website, with the connections we have with partners all over the world, um, with the other aspects of what we do, which is to create uh, a sense uh, of I wouldn't say not reversal, but it is reversal from a sense of anxieties, a sense of depression, a sense of fear, a sense of, a sense of threat, the sense that this is happening to you, that you're the object and that you got screwed or that you're the short end of the straw. or And, and that is what the 15 to 25-year-olds think. You know, Clover Hogan has done these wonderful surveys in 50 countries with the American Psychological Association. 70% of the people 15 to 25 are, are anxious and depressed. 
They have mental health issues about climate, about climate. So our purpose, Clever's purpose too, you know, our purpose is to say, look at, got it. Wow, the science is incredible, amazing. Who knew? I know. Actually, I didn't do it. I just got here. <laughs> if you're, you know. <laughs> and uh, I could blame uh, the baby boomers and prior generations and so forth for being so amazingly selfish and stupid. Or, or uh, I could actually work on the problem. And there's that quote, that Wendell Berry quote, you know, uh, be joyous though you know all the facts. And so to me, it's about embracing the facts. This is again, you know, the homeschooling mother Earth saying, hey, look at, here's the facts, you know, and then saying, okay, now what do we do? And creating a culture of optimism, a culture of possibility, because we're drowning in the probabilities of what's going to happen, you know, and they're not good. And what we're not drowning in is the possibilities of what we can do and what's effective and what's working. And so regeneration is uh, hopefully trying to help and serve and offer people the idea that you can do this 180 pivot and do what the first sentence says in the book, which is to put life at the center of every act of decision and see where that takes you. And that takes us, takes our companies, takes our families, takes our cities, takes whatever it is that we're involved with, you know. And, and to ask a different question and to proceed in a different way. And um, the, the thing about, you know, people changing you, the thing that changes our beliefs about, you start the program talking about people believing it's game over, that's done and so forth. That's a belief, that's not true, it's not untrue, it's just a belief. And, um, but the thing that changes our beliefs is action not beliefs don't change. Beliefs don't change our actions. Our actions change our beliefs. So the way to change ourselves and our effectiveness and in the world is to start acting. And so regeneration is very much about the cheerleading squad to do that. We're doing ourselves, our whole team um, in very specific ways and so forth besides the book and the website itself, but to really um, create a sense of, of, you know, team earth, <laughs> like, and to, in a way, pull back the curtain in a sense so that people can see that this is a burgeoning movement, that it's extraordinary how diverse and, and widespread it is and how fast it's growing, much faster than the things that are harming us are growing. And, and is it in time? Who knows? Um, there's no point in trying to answer unanswerable questions, you know. I mean, you can think about them, you can ponder them. I do all the time. Uh, I feel grief and sorrow and loss, just like anybody else. I'm a sixth, gener fifth generation California with grandchildren or seventh generation. And, and I, I see it being destroyed by fire going from France to Spain and ecologically, you know. And so I feel that loss and so forth. So it's not like we're just being Dr. Pangloss and hey, you know, let's go. We're, we're taking that grief, that sense of loss, which Joanna Macy talks about, and transforming it into something that gives meaning to our life and gives meaning to others. And I think the number one cause of depression I've heard actually is uh, having no purpose. I was feeling you are purposeless and that you, the world, sees you as having no purpose. And there's no meaning there. And then you have a job that is frankly meaningless. You do, you know it is. It gives you money in order to survive, you know. And 
when you imagine you know, a life of regenerating life on earth, you know, creating more life, bringing the world to life, brings us back to life. And it gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and dignity. And one of the things I say and emphasize in the book is this idea that there's future existential threat. But can we just time out on that one? Most of the world deals with current existential threat and the thing about the solutions that are in regeneration and in nexus and brought on as well, different ones and so forth is that if there wasn't a climate scientist alive, if we had no idea what was causing extreme weather, we would want to do all of these solutions because they have cascading benefits for the future, for children, for water, for health, for education, for well-being, for connecting us, for bringing us together. I mean, the list is so long. And so you don't need to believe, quote, quote, in climate change, you know, whatever, uh, you can figure it out to understand that these solutions are the, uh, the, the most meaningful way that we could express ourselves in our life. And that goes back to, you know, you're here for a short time, you know, what are you going to do and who are you going to be? It goes back to Wendell Berry. If you know the facts, got it but you want to lead a life of being, again, a victim. No, why would you do that? You're here. It's an amazing place. This planet is a miracle. And so that's what regeneration is about, is having bigger arms. And those bigger arms you talked about, it's in your body. Let's, can we look at this from a different point of view than one of not just victimization, but, you know, just like, oh, we're in trouble. We may not make it and so forth, you know. You can wake up with that every morning if you wish, you know, or you can wake up every morning saying, this is what I'm going to do today. And I work with the most wonderful people and I have the most wonderful ideas and no, I haven't made tons of money and, and no, that is no longer what is motivating me and so forth. And, and that what gives me meaning is purpose, you know, what gives me meaning is the, what I've devoted myself and my heart uh, to. And it sounds maybe, you know, blissful or something. I don't mean it that way. I mean it in a very practical, pragmatic way. And so we need to understand that the four and a half billion people who are poor in the world right now and who wake up every morning worried about education, about food security, about safety, about clothing, about, edu you know, books. Can they afford books? Can they be safe, you know, when they go out and get firewood, you know, all those sorts of things. If poverty doesn't want to be fixed, it wants to fix itself. And when we look at these solutions, you know, the regenerative solutions, they give people the tools to change and transform their lives, you know, and, and it gives people who, who are robbed of dignity, robbed of meaning by systems that are extractive, economic systems, a way to reclaim their life. Now, Paul, I want to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of some of the exciting regeneration in action solutions that the book sheds a light on, illuminates. There are a few I wrote down that really, for whatever reason, captured me uh, in terms of their uh, sense of magic. So one that I'd never heard of was the Azola fern. I don't know if I'm <laughs> pronouncing that correctly. Tell tell our listeners, what is the Azola fern and how might it be able to help us? Well, I mean, my whole staff got hung up on that one, not in a bad way, but we did sort of went down the deepest rabbit hole ever because we were so fascinated by it. 
there was an Azola event 49 million years ago. And the Azola event was on the Arctic. And at that time, it was so warm. It was 25,000 ppm, you know, an atmosphere of CO2. And uh, starting in the spring, all through the fall, the Arctic, uh, the, the winter ice melted. It was freshwater lens. Okay, It wasn't salt water. It was freshwater. And you had this Azola event. It's an Azola is a fern. It's very tiny, like a little floret. Uh, it doubles in size every two to three days. You know, it it creates it draws nitrogen from the air. You know, and it floats. Uh, it makes omega three oils, which is unusual for a plant. Uh, and uh, it sequesters carbon really, really rapidly. It, you know, uh, it's a plant. Every plant sequesters carbon, but it's, it, it sequesters rapidly because it doubles in size every two to three days and so forth. So boom, 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 boom. So what we know about the Azola van is it went from 25,000 ppm uh, in the atmosphere of CO2 to 6,000 in very relatively short time. And that was Azola. And that Azola then when the salt water came back in the fall, you know, when the, you know, the ice started to melt and the freshwater lens was gone, this, the, the Azola dies. It dies in salt water. And went to the bottom and so forth. When you know, you know, when we're drilling for oil in the Arctic, you know, the oil we're drilling for is the old Azola farm that actually carbonized in the bottom of the ocean and so forth, in the, in the Arctic portion. So, uh, so we looked at it is it from a different point of view, which is it's seen as invasive. It gets in your ponds. It's hard to get out. Okay, so that's seen as invasive, but. Um, but it has, as I said, omega threes. It you can eat it, put it in your salad. You can use it as food for chickens or cattle or goats or goats or whatever. You can actually top dress your soil with it or use it as a fertilizer. And then we started thinking as a we didn't put this in a book, you know. I mean, ours to be objective, but we all got so excited about it, and we said, what if you put it in Bismarck, North Dakota, at the at the headwaters of the Missouri River? And you put in a kilo of azola fern, and we know it's in the spring. You know it's going to double every two, three days, and so forth. Then you just so we did these <laughs> models, and we tracked it, and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we had to take it out every so often. We had to do a takeout, you know, to clog the river. And so we took it out. And what do we do with that? Well, we make fertilizer. We can make fuel with it. We made vitamins or, you know, oil, you know, omega-3 oils with it. Or we fed it to chickens and we had omega-3 eggs, all that sort of stuff. And then it keep doing that all the way down the river because it goes, becomes the Mississippi and then, you know, through, you know, Missouri and then this is, you know, you know, all the different states there, Louisiana. And then it goes to the ocean and it goes to the ocean and dies. And um goes to the bottom but all along the way it is sequestered uh, basically phosphates and nitrates that are runoff from the midwest and from farms and so therefore it brings the dead zone in the gulf of mexico back to life and then we started thinking okay this is the undammed river the missouri mississippi that we did for every undammed river in the world you know and it's not invasive in a stream it's invasive in a pond Right, because the stream is flowing water, it goes to one place, the ocean. And so the amount of carbon we can sequester is amazing, amazing. And so that's a Zola fern. But practically speaking, you can use it if you're a farmer, you have a pond, you can use it there and then you know, just have a skimmer and take it off and feed it to your cows, horses, you know, you can eat it yourself, you can use it as 
you know, top dressing on your, on your garden. You can use it in so many, many ways. And it's just a plant that's been, you know, hasn't really been fully embraced or understood, you know, as, as something that can be so helpful. So that's a rather arcane, but its potential is extraordinary. Well, I think it serves as an example. I mean, the book covers lots and lots of illustrations like this of things that maybe have been overlooked that have a lot of potential yeah. to to help us. Uh, one that I'd never heard of as well was this notion of carbon architecture. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, and here, architects are on it. There's two aspects of a building. One is embodied carbon. How much carbon did it take to build the darn thing? You know, now how much carbon does it use on an operating basis? You know, in terms of heat and uh, uh, cooling uh, and you know, uh, hot water uh, and changing out the air. And um, most of the, the lead standards and all those things have looked at operating systems. You know, it's how much can you reduce the amount of carbon and so forth. And that's great. Very few have looked at embodied carbon and uh, the steel, the concrete, you know, the machinery, how it's built, I mean, all that sort of stuff. And that's it, by far the largest um, uh, 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 source of carbon emissions is actually the very building itself, you know, not the heating system, HVAC systems. And so now you have a whole school of architecture, which is the living building system, Jason McLennan, you know, uh, you have it in CIRA, S-E-R-A, which is a, a very well-known green architect firm in uh, Oakland and Seattle. Um, and basically looking at the building as a, a possibility to sequester carbon. So the material materials you use are already sequestering carbon. They're carbon, they call carbon negative. I don't think that's the right word, by the way, but nevertheless, you know, uh, they're not emitting, you know, they're doing the opposite. And so you look at the building as something where it has at least zero carbon emissions, embodied emissions, and then you have systems that further that. And so that the building itself is like a tree, and that is a tree is a carbon sequestering machine. It's not a carbon emitting machine. <laughs> And so you can make a building like a tree and the answer is yeah, you can. And so carbon architecture is using nature as a design, the light motif of creating structures that are lightweighted, that are different, that use different materials that um, provide um, a sense of, uh, of dwelling, you know, or, or gathering, you know, that is actually in alignment with biology. We have to retrofit most of the buildings on earth too. You know, it's not like we can build all new buildings, but we are building new buildings and this is where we're going. And the, the tallest timber building, it's built entirely of timber, uh, is in Vienna. And I think it's, if I remember from the book, it's 26 stories. Um, and the, the master builder and designer was a woman and there's a picture of her in the the book she's great, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, but it's happening all over the world, you know, this, this shift in uh, architecture. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul, I'm going to make myself uh, vulnerable here. Uh, you write the most important and effective action a person can take is something that lights them up, 
that they want to know more about, that they care about, that fascinates them. So as I was reading Regeneration, I was looking, <laughs> what lights me up? What, you know, yes, obviously disseminating spiritual wisdom. Let's leave that alone for a moment. What lights me up about all of these different regeneration in action? And the place where I had the moment, where I was like, I want to work on that. Uh, had to do when I was reading about Paris and how Paris is determined to be the first plastic waste-free water system in the world. And the whole idea that there are vending machines where you can get your water bottle that you can then use with the water that's being distributed. And I think, you know, the reason this is very, you know, simple, very low to the ground. I hate buying plastic water when I'm at the airport and, all, and yet I do it. I do it a lot. And so I would like to solve this problem. And I thought Boulder, Boulder should be a city like that. Come on, that's where I live. So that's where I got. And then I thought, what am I going to do? Uh, go talk to someone on the city council. Oh God, I don't want to do that. And I started like kind of sinking myself, even as my energy was rising. And I want to use this just as an example. So people, they get the book Regeneration, sure. they have this inspiration, but probably like me, then they're also going to go, they're going to have that moment where, you know, it's easy. I mean, I hit an obstacle before I even made my first phone call, just in my mind. Yeah. And so the, the result, the outcome that you have, but not the, not the, the solving and that's fine. And so one of my examples of regeneration is a young man who looked at um, basically these huge refugee camps, you know, in Syria, in Bangladesh for the Rohingya and so forth. And what he does is he goes to there and he teaches, he, he makes these big uh, canvases for murals and he brings paints and he teaches children art. That's what lights them up. These are children that are not being taught anything at all. There's no schools there in these camps, right? And they are lit up. He's lit up. You know, I mean, who doesn't get lit up with children that are alive and giggling and creative and happy, you know? And so I'm trying to expand the sense of regeneration. The idea that somehow that book contains all the things that are regenerative is nonsense. It doesn't. It's just, that's why I say it's a neurotransmitter. It's just like, kind of light something up in you, you know, rather than to say, this is the list, you know, choose one. No, you choose and you decide what it is that lights you up. And the one you said about lighting up people about spirituality, go for it. I mean, that is regeneration, core, you know, so forth. So again, uh, for different people, it's going to be different for everyone, you know, and that's what we're trying to emphasize, you know. The, the big arms of regeneration. So rather seeing what you do is not related to climate. Of course it is. Of course it is. Because as people get in touch, you know, I mean, that's a probably pretty reductionist way of talking about spirituality, but, you know, in touch with their selves, you know, with their spirit, with their heart, with their, you know, you know, the, 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 as, as Jack Cornfield would say in, in Tarabadi, the one who knows, is in every one of us, you know? And so in as much as spirituality starts to open that up and touch upon that, who knows what happens after that? Or there's no after, but I mean, on an ongoing way. So to me, you just nailed it right there, which is like, oh, you know, I like that. And, you know, what a great idea. It's not what I want to do. So it didn't light you up. And I understand it, you know, who wants to deal with bureaucracy? Some people love it. They really do. They love to be the person that makes that kind of change. They have the patience. They have the social skills. I don't, by the way. 
Um, <laughs> and they do it. And then when it happens, you know, they have this sense of satisfaction. The people who did that, did that in Paris are really, really happy about what they did and proud of what they did. And they can see the effects. It impacts every single day, you know, in their hometown and home city. And so that's, you just answer, you ask the right, you ask the right question and you answer it perfectly because, uh, you're to say, who's to say what is the regenerative act that you should do? Not me, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's a note I'd like to end on, Paul. You write in the book, what is holding us back today is not a lack of solutions. It's the lack of imagination of what is possible. Yeah. Share with us your imagination of what is possible, what you imagine. I imagine this, that number one, that the climate movement will be the biggest movement on earth because of weather, no other reason, okay? And that it will coalesce and organize itself in ways that exist right now. And that to create uh, sort of the, the catalyst, you know, for 1 billion people to become activists in the world and to, to completely change what we understand to be uh, economic value to understand value itself, you know. As I said, we have an economy built on this value. And, and, and I just see the, it's like if you're a good gardener, a good farmer, and you see soil, and you say, oh my God, what I could do with this soil? <laughs> I can grow things, I can do this. You know, you, you imagine, you know, the garden of this or that, you, you want to create. The same thing holds true with society which is it's in crisis, it's depressed, it's anxious, it's worried, it's fighting, it's divisive, it's divided, it's, you know, all the things that come out of fear and, and isolation and so forth. And to me, I see that as the soil that we can use in a regenerative way. You know, I don't want to put people to make them soil, but the, the thing about it, beautiful thing about soil is that what industrial life never figured out is that it's a community. It's a community of organisms. And so we are a community and uh, always, and we've been completely fractured by systems and, you know, and greed and, and, and corruption and politics and ways of doing things that we didn't understand the full impact of. And I just feel like one by one, you know, people are going to wake up to that and either they're going to go with demagogues and populists and fascists, you know, which is possible, by the way, Tammy, that's very possible. Or they're going to go, you know, with people who offer a possibility of coming more alive. It's kind of like when we were kids, you know, and there was, you know, sandboxes in the playground and over there they were hitting each other with their Tonka toys and over there they were giggling. Where did we go? We went to the ones who were giggling. And, and I just feel that you know that basic childlike understanding and intelligence has been lost in us and, and so when i say be joyous it's not about being panglossian about being it's about being a person a human being that brings people together to you not because you are offering them anything other than who you are in that moment in that day in that life, in what you do, what you stand for. And and that's my 
that's my imagining. Uh, but as I said, right now we have technology which is not imaginative so much as it is manipulative, you know, and imagination. I, I, I don't know much time we have left, but just another way to look at this is that if you have a reasonable goal, my goal in life is this. It's reasonable because you know exactly how to do it or how it's done. Okay, that's why it's reasonable. What we need to share, what brings us alive is unreasonable goals. And to end the climate crisis means to be going at that rate, you know, by 2030 that will take us to where we want to be in 40 and 50 and where we need to be on all levels, socially, economically, and scientifically in terms of climatology. And um, the thing about unreasonable goals is you don't know how to do them. Not, that's why they're unreasonable. Like, I have no idea. What should we do? What do you think? And that brings us together in a way, but it brings out creativity, imagination, innovation. And if there was ever a time when we needed that, and we are getting it, but then that is now. And so by having ending the climate crisis in one generation, as I define it, uh, and reversing global warming and so forth, which is drawdown and so forth, I mean, that is the goals we should share. And then when we have goals like that, then we can share our lack of knowing. That is, we don't know how, and then we can come together and learn together because that is what humans do best. They love to solve problems as a group. They learn faster as a group. And they like to do things in a group. We're social animals. Calling on Team Earth. Paul, uh, I love that phrase uh, that you offered. I really, really love talking to you. Your book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. I have to say, it lifted me up. Being with the book, reading all of the stories, seeing all of the examples, uh, filled me with a sense of being connected, being part of the fabric of this regenerative Team Earth. Thank you so much. Uh, you're a great, in my view, you're a great bodhisattva in our time. So thank you. Thank you, Tammy, and thank you for all the work you do and have done. Uh, you are a focal point, and if anybody understands what agency is, you do. <laughs> all right, let's take it, everyone. Sounds true. Waking up the world. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.